As I was walking over here, I was coming along a path through the trees, and I heard a sound off to the side of the path, and my mind became alert. It heard the sound, and, you know, I've heard squirrels and birds and many times, but this sounded a little bit larger. (laughs) And there was a, you know, a little flicker in the mind. What is that? What could that be? sounded pretty heavy. And then a deer leaped across the path in front of me. And, you know, it caught in my flashlight and I saw it in my mind, instantly knew it was a deer. And I stood still because they often come together. And sure enough, the other two that have been hanging around in the group of three came across the path also. But it was interesting to watch my mind negotiate what is that? How should I respond? We'll see that this ties in to tonight's topic. So in Bhante's talk last night on Anicca, impermanence, he referred to a list called the five aggregates. And these five aggregates are areas of experience where we tend to cling and also where we tend to create a self. And so just to name them one more time, they are uh, rupa, form, vedana, often translated as feeling tone, but just vedana, sanya, perception, sankhara, mental or volitional formations, and vijnana, consciousness. And so the topic of today's talk is the third aggregate, sanya, or perception. And also we'll talk about certain distortions of perception and also how to train uh, our perception, how to practice with with perception. So why? Why am I focusing on this one little topic within the five aggregates? And it's because this particular area, this particular aggregate, shall we say, often lies at the foundation of the creation of dukkha. It can be the spark that lights the fire. The self is originally born as a perception, for example. So overall, it's important to understand something about how perception works and how the Buddha recommended that we practice with it. So we could start by asking, what is it? Um, So the simplest definition of sanya is that this is the function of mind that labels, recognizes, or names an experience. So the mind naturally recognizes and adds a label to our sense experiences, what we see and hear and touch, and also even in the mind. So we hear some pitches and a certain type of sequence, and the mind says, bird. Or we hear rustling in the leaves, and the mind thinks, deer, and then it appears, and yes, it's a deer. Or we see a, you know, a particular pattern of shapes and colors, and we recognize a tree, So this is just a normal functioning of the mind, but there may be a few things worth noticing at this top level. One is that perception relies on memory. We recognize something because we have encountered something like it before. And we train our children this way too, you know. You hold up the one or two year old cup, (laughs) cup. This is what, you know, here it is. And so we're matching the sense impression with the word. And so then we see also that perception is about the creation of a concept. So perception could also be called conceptualization. It's where we apply um, something conceptual to a direct sensory experience. It's completely necessary to do this in our life. Um, But it does have a way of obscuring the particularities of an experience. 
And there's also the possibility of it being inaccurate. Maybe the most important practical thing to realize about perception in a dharmic sense is that it is conditioned. So it's affected by various other factors that are present in the mind, and it's subject to change. So we'll talk in more detail about this, because this is a lot of where the suffering can come in. So the simplest definition is the very initial moment of recognition But there is a little bit of range, and sometimes in the Buddhist teachings, uh, sanya is said to include more complex ideas, like the concept of impermanence or dispassion. But perception is distinct from making a whole complicated story and associations that might follow after we recognize something. That would be more the realm of mental formations, the fourth aggregate. So just as an example that distinguishes perception for mental formations. I lived for a few years at Insight Retreat Center in California, which is in a semi-rural area uh, near the Santa Cruz Mountains. And one day I opened a closet door in the basement, and there was a scorpion on the floor of the closet. And I saw it. There was no sense impression of seeing. And my mind said, scorpion, because... You know, we labeled it. And then um, I was kind of, I guess, somewhat distracted, and my mind kind of flipped on to, you know, what it was there for, and where's the mop, <laughs> you know, looking elsewhere in the closet. And then it kind of stopped, and my mind said, what? Scorpion? <laughs> what? So I looked down again, and I saw the scorpion, and my mind very helpfully said, scorpion. <laughs> And I had to look a few times until I could really comprehend that that's what was on the floor of the closet. Um, There weren't, you know, and so the label is often very simple and automatic. Our mind just does that if we're familiar with that object. But in this case, my mind got hung up on integrating the information into meaning. And there wasn't even much of an emotional response until I could really take in that it was a scorpion And then I thought, whoa, what should I do about that? Um, So we see that there's a difference between perception as the simple naming and then mental formations as the activity of making meaning and responding and so forth to sense experience. And I'd also like to just briefly note that um, sanya in Buddhism is a little bit different than what is called perception in Western psychology. I know that they're both about responding to sense impressions, but I'm not going to go into a comparison here. Um, But just if you know the term from psychology, I would encourage you to somewhat relax or set aside uh, your understanding of that in order to um, learn more about how the Buddha used it in the Dharma. So I'll try to sprinkle in the word sanya from time to time as a reminder that we're talking about a Buddhist term. So as our practice here on retreat is continuing, it might be good to see if you can notice this aspect of experience, this moment where your mind recognizes and names an experience. So if you've been doing the noting practice, that is an example of deliberately activating perception, deliberately bringing perception to the fore. Uh, but we can also try to see sanya operating naturally, quote-unquote, since it always, it always is occurring. Perception happens in every moment of experience, and for the most part, it functions smoothly and invisibly. You know, we walk through the world, and we generally recognize what we're interacting with. When you arrived here for the talk... You saw the floor and the walls and the ceiling, and you knew that you're in a room. You know how to walk around the zabutons and the chairs. You understand that you're seeing other people, and you're hearing the sounds of people, and and so on and so on. All of this occurs way below the level of needing any cognitive effort. So that's normal. Um, But it's helpful in terms of our practice, to be reminded that sense impressions are actually far more basic than the concepts that we overlay on them. 
You know, what does the eye actually detect? The eye can see edges, so it can see contrasts, and it can see colors, at least for some people, for most people, but not everyone. That's what the eye can literally see. And everything else is laid on top by the function of perception in the mind. It would be impossible to live if we had to go through a process of re-understanding everything in terms of these very basic sense impressions all the time. Um, Instead, we very smoothly know what to do with a cup, with a shirt, with a doorway. We know those things. So we make this kind of shortcut of using concepts based on memory. So it's essential to conceptualize and largely invisible, and that can be a problem. Um, If you want to be liberated from suffering in the way that the Buddha talked about, it's very useful to bring this function of mind into awareness. We'll talk about the problems of perception in a moment. But how can we become aware of perception? Often, perception is most visible when it fails. So Sally Armstrong tells a story of walking into a restaurant just before it was about to open for the day and seeing a large green pile of something on the back table. And there were two workers sitting there. And her mind got stuck looking across the room again and again at this pile while her mind struggled for a name. What is that? What is that? And the mind is going through its Rolodex of what it might be, of what, you know, what memory does that look like so I can stick a label on it. And she felt herself kind of compelled to walk closer so that she could see it better. And it turned out to be a huge pile of string beans that were being cut. But she couldn't see that quite from across the room. First, she just could not grok what that was. So this is a moment when we can see perception sort of stand out because we see the mind struggling to put a label on something which it would normally do quite automatically. Probably every day you see or hear something that you don't quite know how to label immediately. And this moment of struggle uh, can be a time to at first catch what perception is, and then once you've seen that, you can see it operating more normally. Have a look for yourself. Have a look for yourself. Um, The classic perceptual mistake uh, is thinking that a rope is a snake. This is a classic one. You walk into the garden shed and you see a coiled object, and fear arises snake. But then we see it's a rope. As we turn on the light, we see it's a rope. But there are real consequences of inaccurate perception. Now we've got the the fear hormones running through the body uh, until they fade away. This is quite relevant for practice. If we mislabel something and have a response to it, a lot can happen from that. There is an interesting phase of practice, just worth naming briefly, where it becomes glaringly obvious that the mind is painting its interpretation onto experience. Um, We suddenly see that sense impressions are really simple and unadorned, and the mind is constructing an idea of reality on top of that. It's a little eerie when this happens in practice. Much of what we think is just how it is, is actually something that's attributed by our mind. So it's not a stretch to say that Buddhist practice is about the retraining of perception. The world remains as it is, but we learn to see differently in some sense. Or maybe more precisely, we we stop misperceiving, which is often the, the way we're doing it. So one issue is finding a label that matches the experience pretty well, like figuring out that the green pile is string beans. But there's actually a deeper issue. Uh, Even when we do find an apparently appropriate label, it's still subject to a deeper level of inaccuracy. We routinely misperceive in fundamental ways that lead to suffering. So I'll read this quote from... 
uh, Mathieu Ricard, who was a wonderful Tibetan monk from France, French man. One of the main pursuits of Buddhism is to bridge the gap between the way things appear and the way things are. That approach arises from the understanding that an incorrect perception of reality inevitably leads to suffering. Grasping to solid reality and to the notion of an independent self in particular engenders a host of afflictive mental states and afflictive emotions that are the primary cause of mind-made sufferings. There's a lot packed in there. But there's a way in which our mind is missing something. And we've been living that way for a while. So in the suttas, the Buddha names four distortions of perception. These distortions are actually said to affect perceptions and thoughts and views, which are all just kind of different levels of how far we've gone down the path with something. So the perception very initial and thought maybe following and a view is more entrenched, but they're all subject to these various distortions. It's like a warping of how we see or like having a lens in front of our vision without being aware of it. So we're not seeing clearly or accurately. And it's such a fundamental problem for humans that the Buddha laid out these four distortions so that we can watch for them. And the Pali word here for the distortion is vipalasa. It was actually mentioned last night also. So the first of these distortions is seeing what is impermanent as permanent. And Bonte named this one last night. We think something is permanent when it's actually impermanent. Teachings emphasizing the inconstancy or impermanence of experience are all over the Buddhist teachings. This is clearly something that uh, we need a lot of help to learn. So this is about anicca, right, impermanence. And despite anicca being so obvious, we, we still don't see it in many instances. Uh, we're often shocked when things end or break or change. It might suddenly get cold after many days of fairly warm weather, for example. <laughs> Or our favorite cup might break. Or our car, our house, our relationships. Often uh, these things change. And sometimes we feel that something has gone wrong. But actually it hasn't. This is very normal that everything is subject to these continual shifts and changes. A big area where we misperceive this way is around death. You know, we see other people dying, but we don't really think it will happen to us. I used to volunteer for a hospice, and I would sit with people who were dying. It's a very beautiful practice. But I would meet people who were well into their 90s, who were nonetheless a little bit outraged that they were dying. I was amazing, um, kind of sweet in its own way, but this is, you know, this is an issue for humans. This is from the Dhammapada. Death sweeps away the person obsessed with gathering flowers as a great flood sweeps away a sleeping village. This leads into the second distortion, which is seeing what is dukkha as happiness. So dukkha here could be suffering, but it also means just unsatisfactory. So this means seeing what is unsatisfactory as satisfactory. So the verse I just read talked about the person obsessed with gathering flowers. And in this, uh, in this verse, gathering flowers means chasing after sense pleasures. So as humans, we want to be happy. This is not a problem. It's good to want to be happy. But we may not be so clear on what real happiness is or how to go about getting it. 
And one of the distortions that we put on experience is that we try to make things be satisfactory or happy when they aren't really that way, if we look more carefully. So we often think that something is going to do it for us. You know, we think, ah, I'm going to take a long, hot bath tonight. That's really going to do it for me after a long day of meditation. And if the conditions come together and we actually get to do that, we do enjoy it. But does it really satisfy completely? Doesn't your mind just go on to the next thing that's going to be just perfect after that? So it helps in this example to understand that dukkha, in this case, doesn't have this narrow meaning of suffering. A nice hot path is not suffering. And there's nothing wrong in enjoying it. But a hot bath is dukkha because it's not able to ultimately satisfy us. And if we don't know that, we're setting ourselves up for a certain kind of suffering. If we're honest, I think, all of those special pleasant things are quite temporary. And sometimes they're not even that good. They're not even as good in the moment as we think they're going to be, right? The hot water is nice, but it's a little hard on my back to be resting on a hard ceramic surface. And after about 10 minutes, the water's starting to cool off a little bit, isn't it? So just, you know, maybe just answer honestly for yourself. Whatever it is that you think you need to get or get rid of, do you think that will fully do it for you? If I just fulfill this one craving, then I'll be done with craving, I promise. (laughs) Really? So there's an image given in the suttas for the the hindrance of desire. And the, the image is like looking into water that has been dyed. It's like an early version of the rose-colored lenses. So you can see how this links to this idea of the this second distortion. Ironically, actually, the very fact of having the distorted perception that some experience is going to make us happy diminishes the enjoyment of it, I've found. And when we actually understand that no experience can inherently make us happy forever, it actually becomes much easier to enjoy things fully and to let them go when they're gone. So then the third distortion is seeing what is not self as self. And this is about taking things as me and myself and mine. And one way that we do this in particular is with our body. So we we may think that our, our nails look great, you know, buffed them up today. But then when we clip them and the nail cuttings are lying on the bathroom counter, is that still me? Or is it something to sweep into the trash at that point? When we identify with the body in various ways, we might think that we have more control over it than we do. Lewis Thomas, who was a wonderful 20th century biologist who had an of an eye for the spiritual. He wrote this in an essay. If I were informed tomorrow that I was in direct communication with my liver and could take over now, I would become deeply depressed. (laughs) Nothing would save me and my liver if I were in charge. For I am, to face the facts squarely, considerably less intelligent than my liver. I am, moreover, constitutionally unable to make hepatic decisions, and I prefer not to be obliged to ever. I would not be able to think of the first thing to do. So I looked it up, by the way. The liver um, has about 200 chemical processes that take place in it. And so if you were responsible for consciously coordinating and executing all of those at the right time, That's got to be the ultimate management nightmare. So what is the body? Who is in charge of it? It says in the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the sutta, the discourse on the characteristic of not-self, 
it is not possible to have it of form, or we could say the body, it is not possible to have it of the body, let my body be thus, let my body not be thus. Have you noticed that? So it's easy enough, maybe, to see that that we don't have total control of the body. But wait, wait, what about the mind? Aren't we defined by our views, our personality, all the experiences that have shaped the mind to be as it is now? So here we're talking about our our patterns, you know, these typical behaviors and thoughts that feel so cozy and they fit so tightly into the mind that we we hardly even see them. You know, all that stuff that feels like me. Well, those things do certainly matter and they are real in the sense of being present in our experience. But there have been so many conditions that have been changing, arising, passing up to now in your life it's, it's just not accurate to see them as an inherent qualities or as referring to a fixed and existent self. They're going to keep changing as we go forward also. So we mistake impersonal experience for something that is me or mine. As Joseph Goldstein has said, though, only six things ever happen. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and mental activity. We, we don't really find a fixed self among those. This is an important thing. I know it's hard to breeze over it, so we'll talk about it some more in a few minutes. But I, I want to just name the fourth distortion first that the Buddha talked about, which is mistaking what is not beautiful for what is beautiful. Uh, and the word here for beautiful is uh, suba, and so not beautiful is asuba, the opposite. This one's a little bit less um, clear to, uh, it's not talked about quite as much, let's say. But at a top level, it refers to not getting enamored with the features of other people's bodies. So if we see, this is about viewing other people as beautiful. So if I see somebody else as beautiful, is it their liver? Maybe. Their bones? If their organs were laid out uh, on the floor, that would not be as beautiful. So we can see that labeling something as beautiful requires the selection of certain features and the ignoring of certain other features. Right? It's, it's, so it has this conditioned nature. And at a deeper level, this fourth distortion is about attributing inherent qualities to external objects, not realizing the role that the mind plays in its own experience. And we can't exactly locate beauty in an object. It's only in our labeling of it that we see that. So that points to the crux of the issue here, which is that we are not innocent observers of the world. As Brian said the other night, We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. So how we name an experience is conditioned. It depends on causes and conditions. And, you know, once this has been talked through and pointed out, it's actually fairly easy to see when we look for it. So suppose that the mind has anger in it. Suppose we have anger in the mind right now we would perhaps see someone's facial expression as a scowl when in fact they just had gas from eating too many beans at lunch. Or suppose the mind has fear in it right now and so then we jump when we hear a branch brush against the window in the wind. But if we had equanimity in the mind instead we might just perceive the sound as sound. If the mind has metta, we might feel gratitude when we see the cooks lifting the lids off the soup pots for dinner. So we may be getting the sense from these four distortions that perception is not so reliable. And furthermore, that the mind is creating a lot of its own suffering through misperception Both of those would be good intuitions. But knowing that perception can be influenced 
that it is conditioned, we might wonder, is there a useful way to train perception? Yes, there is. So there are many instances in the teachings where the Buddha gave instructions on cultivating certain perceptions as a support for walking the path to liberation. So let's talk about training perception. We do need to start with the right idea about that. So I want to be clear up front that sanya is not totally controllable. So the Anatta Lakana Sutta that I just quoted about the body, uh, it applies actually to all of the five aggregates. So it also says farther down, it is not possible to have it of perception. May my perception be thus, may it not be thus. You know, that has to do with the not-self nature of sanya. When I was in elementary school, I would walk to and from school, and on the route that I took home, there was a place where I would round a certain corner, and there was a little gray tree stump, a fairly small tree, and it had one straggling exposed root, just, just a little bit above the ground, and when I saw it, I would think for a moment that it was a cat because it looked like a little gray body with the tail. And, but then it didn't move as I went by, so that I would see that it was a tree stump. Now, I had never heard of Buddhist practice or mindfulness, certainly not the five aggregates, uh, but I did notice, even in elementary school, that my mind would say cat every time, <laughs> even though I knew it was... I'd already gone through this process of thinking cat and then realizing stump. So I thought that was curious. And sometimes I would even remember ahead of getting to the corner and I would go around the corner and my mind would still say cat. (laughs) So, you know, I didn't have the language at the time, but this is about perception, about the labeling or recognizing of experience. And it doesn't immediately change even when we get new information. Sometimes it does. You know, we can probably all think of a time when we had our bubble popped and we could never see something in a certain way again. But often it doesn't. Often it takes a while to retrain, to to change our perception. And yet perception is trainable. We can exert some influence on it and slowly shift it over time. So the aim of Dharma practice is to see things accurately, you know, to see them as they have come to be, yata, bhuta. So correcting distortions in the mind is part of wisdom. We can't be free if we're not seeing clearly. So working with perception is kind of in the same category as working with strategies to let go of the hindrances. Now this is same kind of idea. So there are deliberate ways that we can begin to recondition perception. And the Buddha recommended specific perceptions to be developed and cultivated. By far, the most common recommendation that he makes is to cultivate the perception of impermanence, anicca sanya. So this is, um, in fact, among the practices that the Buddha recommended to his own son, Rahula. And you might notice that this practice, this, this training of perception, counteracts the first of the distorted perceptions, right? That, uh, of seeing what is impermanent as permanent. So Bhante talked about this yesterday, actually. He called it anicca contemplation of impermanence, but it's essentially the same thing. So as he said, the key is to use careful mindfulness to break this illusion of, of compactness. So like seeing a, a line that looks solid, um, but as you get closer, you see it's actually a line of ants walking along very close to each other, really separate ants. So as we get more and more precise and quick with mindfulness, we see more and more that experience is not so solid, not so compact. 
you know, the pain in our knee that felt like a solid wall breaks up into little flashes of um, burning or pulling or tension or something else, but it's definitely not solid. So this is an important perception to cultivate. In general, or more, maybe more generally, we could say that we're that cultivating the perception of impermanence is about see, seeing things arise. <clears throat> so something was not there, and then it was there. Or seeing things cease. So something was there, and then it's not there. It actually sounds quite straightforward when I say it that way, and it is, in a sense. But it's more profound than we realize to have these simple awarenesses of there and not there and then there. So then the Buddha goes on to say that we should cultivate the perception of dukkha in what is impermanent. This one I won't I also won't say too much about because there will be a whole talk about the dukkha that arises due to impermanence. But for now it's enough to know that the Buddha encouraged us to notice that what is impermanent cannot be ultimately satisfying. And so we see that this recommended perception counteracts the second distortion of seeing happiness in what is dukkha. I know that people sometimes express concerns about this pervasiveness of dukkha that we're supposed to notice. (laughs) What do you mean all experience is suffering? What a depressing world, how life-denying these Buddhists, we get a bad rap because of this emphasis on dukkha. But, you know, maybe framing it with this idea of retraining perception is helpful. It actually seems kind of reasonable to train our mind not to set its hopes for ultimate happiness on something that is unreliable. You know, there are still experiences, of course, that are extremely pleasant and refined and that are valuable to engage with. We're doing a lot of them here, actually. Things like metta and tranquility and jhana, states that come about. Um, we see that these come about also, though, as conditioned experiences. You know, they come about through a confluence of conditions and they end when the conditions end. So if we have this perception in mind, this way of training, we will understand that even jhana is not ultimate happiness and then we won't suffer by clinging to those states. So we have the perception of impermanence, the perception of dukkha in what is impermanent, and then the third training is the perception of not-self in what is dukkha. So you can see that this one relates to the third distortion of seeing what is not-self as self. So maybe we'll spend a little more time on this one because it's quite important. It relates so directly to suffering. And at this point in the retreat, whether you've been here two weeks or eight weeks, there is a real possibility of starting to see it. At an intellectual level, we may be able to get the idea. Uh, It's easy to consider that something that's unreliable and changeable wouldn't really qualify as a lasting stable self. But how do we practice with that experientially? This is not about philosophy. It's about actually seeing it, direct experience. It's not as simple as slapping on a label, this training in perception. So suppose we realize that we're caught up in the same old story for the 117th time. And so we cast about for some teaching to help us, and we remember the teaching of not-self. And so then we desperately start thinking, not-self, (laughs) not-self, as we're going through this story. Um, And, you know, maybe there's there's some modicum of wisdom there, but it's cognitive. You know, we're not going to create not-self from the top down. Uh, And anyway, if we're really caught up in a story, probably the more accurate label would be self. (laughs) Self is what's happening. (laughs) So we can get more experiential about training our perception of not-self. And it begins to become more powerful and effective when we have a moment of seeing the birth of the sense of self. 
So one time I was on retreat and I was doing walking meditation in the parking lot of the retreat center uh, by a row of cars. And I was walking back and forth, back and forth by these cars. And I had been there, it was a longish retreat and I had been there for a while. And my mind was fairly calm and I was just content in my walking meditation. And then, as happens, uh, a thought came into the mind and the thought was, isn't this near where I parked? (laughs) And as soon as I had that thought, one of the cars in the row that I was walking next to stood out as my car. I was walking next to my car along with a bunch of other cars the whole time and it didn't, I never recognized it as mine. Um, but at the moment that the thought came in, activated the memory of what my car looked like, suddenly I saw my car blossom up out of the row as the special car that was mine. <laughs> so it was so obvious in that experience that there was a time when there, there wasn't a self and then the self arose in the form of my car. So it's, it's something extra. It's something that's imputed onto experience. And when we begin to catch this happening multiple times, that's when we begin to loosen our grip on this idea of a fixed, permanent self. That's one way that step by step we move toward letting go of this fixation on the self, let's say. So it's not that there is no self. The self or a sense of ownership is an experience that can happen. But it's just an experience. It comes and goes like anything else. It's impermanent. So don't worry too much about it. Another way that we can deepen the perception of not-self is to is found in the instructions that the Buddha gave to Bahia, and we've mentioned them before when the Buddha was teaching this, this practitioner. He said, in the scene, let there be just the scene, in the heard, just the heard, in the sensed, just the sensed, in the cognized, just the cognized. So when we see experience in this bare, unadorned way, we don't add the self on top. We don't have a chance to add it on top if we're just staying with this basic experience. It's just seeing. It's just thinking. And the Buddha goes on to say to Bahia, if you practice this way, there will be no you in relation to experience. And he concludes with this Just this is the end of dukkha. So if we take an experience like a sound, I'll ring the bell. Here it is, just sound. There's no inherent self in that. In the end, the perception of not-self is actually a perception of absence. What does that mean, to notice absence? So for instance, this room has an absence of giraffes. No giraffe here. I don't need to declare that this is the no giraffe room. It's simply a room that doesn't have a giraffe. I guess it could have a giraffe. It's probably tall enough. I don't know how we'd get it in, but I think it would fit. Anyway, um, it doesn't have a giraffe right now. So we can, we can see experience as devoid of any reference to me, myself, or mine, which doesn't say anything about what it is. It just says something about what it isn't. So... The encouragement is to relax a little bit around this, this perception. So we have the main three perceptions to train in, anicca, dukkha, anatta. But there are others too, actually, that the Buddha recommends. They include the perception of unattractiveness 
and that's asuba, so it's a correction to this fourth distortion. I wanted to put that in for completeness, so he does recommend correcting all of those distortions. But he also talks in other teachings about cultivating the perception of death, the perception of letting go, the perception of fading away or dispassion, and the perception of cessation. So why these particular perceptions? It turns out that they have useful qualities. So when the Buddha reflected on his own process of awakening and how his mind changed through practice, he realized that these particular concepts, or in some cases absence, they have the quality of drawing the mind along the path, of developing the mind in useful ways. So they're healthy correctives to our habitually inaccurate way of seeing. And in particular, training in these perceptions moves the mind toward being more refined. We may be starting to notice that at times we have some of the more refined states in our mind. Things like tranquility, ease, samadhi, equanimity. These can be subtle, but they are maybe peeking through. Of course, there are still hindrances at times. But let me point now toward the later items in this list of perceptions. So things like the perception of letting go, the perception of fading away, of ceasing. It's normal for experience to get more subtle as we get more settled. It feels lighter, it feels thinner, We can let that happen. It's just one more thing to notice. In fact, sometimes when experience is getting quite refined, the mind doesn't even bother to label it. That would be too gross, in a sense, too agitating. So the mind doesn't incline toward putting out the effort of perception. So it's fine for experience to fade and even cease. You don't have to try to bring it up so that you have something stronger to be mindful of. So where is all of this going? You know, what is the fruit of practicing with sanya? It's important to note that we are not aiming for a particular perception. There is no perception that is awakening or nibbana there's nothing specific that you're looking for in that sense. So, in, But instead, we're, we're practicing to deeply understand the conditioned nature of perception. Then we can release attachment to having to see experience in a certain way. We become free from our enslavement to fixed ideas. So we, can, we see perceptions arise particularly the sense of self, sometimes. We see them fade away and disappear. We see them change as conditions change. And slowly, slowly, our heart starts to get the message. Perception is an experience like anything else. It's a function of the mind. It's created in the mind. It depends on other factors being present. And it changes when those change. That's it. So freedom from attachment to perception looks something like flexibility of perception. So having the ability to easily change one's perspective is a sign of maturity in Dharma practice. If we have a fixed perception, it's likely that there's clinging somewhere. So... For example, this bell could also be a soup pot, or it could be a flower pot, or it could be maybe a helmet (laughs) for something like an antelope. I think the horns would fit in there, don't you think? So, you know, nonetheless, even with this kind of flexibility, I also know 
that this object is impermanent, that it's not ultimately satisfying, and that it's not me or mine. So perception becomes both more flexible and more accurate. So let's kind of review and sum up what we've said here. Perception is one of the five aggregates, the main areas where we create a self and cling, and hence suffer. And it's useful to start to see this function of the mind. We can see it operating in real time. We can see the mind recognizing, labeling, And there are certain perceptions that are particularly worth cultivating. Number one is the perception of change, of anicca. That's related to noticing the beginnings of things, having a clear sense that something is not there and then it's there. And it also relates to the ending of things, having a clear perception of something being there and then not there. And then when you can, it's interesting to notice particularly this perception of of self and that it's extra. It's something that's added on to experience. And we can see this if we catch moments where the self was not there and then it's there and it appears. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.